Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the big take story here, Shanali Bassett, Bloomberg News. She covers all things Wall Street for us. And how about this headline? Goldman legend, crypto star, and top banker were warned of the next big risk. Like, we don't have enough to worry about. Shanali, thanks so much uh, for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So you talk to these three big folks on Wall Street. What are their concerns? Who did you speak to and what are their concerns? I spoke to three people. We do this project twice a year and it's my favorite because there's so many things happening day to day. This is a risk management business and what you have is former Goldman Sachs investment strategist, now Columbia Business School professor, total star in her entire yep. tenure, uh, really worried now and also she was known for being bullish. Abby Joseph Cohen. Abby Joseph Cohen. She's worried about the American dream okay. and the reason she's worried is because she believes that the U.S. has really fallen off and in investing in the workforce and protecting its workforce via agencies. Meanwhile, we should mm -hmm. just define the American dream. I mean, I think everyone has a different idea of what it is. Or is there one universally agreed definition of the American dream? She defines it. She defines it in terms of income. She defines it whether every generation is doing better than the previous one. And what we've seen, she says, over the last 30 or 40 years is that median and household income adjusted for inflation has not risen. And you're seeing that in the job market today, only compounding with wages not rising as fast, fast as inflation. Where do inflationary pressures matter again? With the next big risk, Ken Molis, billionaire banker, uh, banker to companies around the world from Saudi Arabia to Hong Kong, is worried about deglobalization. He thinks that a lot of these <laughs> these forces can be inflationary even more uh, when you come about uh, when you come to the idea that supply chains are breaking apart across the world and and countries will be more responsible for their own supply chains from food to energy to financial assets right well because we had such a big problem with globalization in the first place <laughs> it's not like supply chains are breaking we're taking them apart dismantling <laughs> them and moving them in some cases right so that we don't have to rely on Russia or 
China necessarily to do the work that we need to get done. And he cites this in terms of Germany, for example, being in extreme trouble. But when I asked if this was just about the war, he said, you know, think about Brexit for example, or what's happening in Sri Lanka and the worry about just getting basic resources to, to citizens. Let's listen to Sam Bankman-Fried also really quickly here. Let's take a listen to what his concern is because it is different than the other two. A lot of the discourse around, you know, COVID and pandemics in general has, you know, as, as you sort of, you know, reference, focused on things like masks. By the time that's the debate, we've already failed um, at the much more important goal, which is avoiding ending up there in the first place by having countermeasures ready beforehand, by having early detection systems, by having good ventilation in buildings. The goal is to get to a place where outbreaks don't become pandemics in the first place and where we don't have to shut down uh, you know, the economy, where people don't have to die, where we don't have to make trade-offs. And hopefully we can, you know, I think, spend you know, tens of billions of dollars today to save tens of trillions of dollars. So there you go, Sam Bankman-Fried, the cryptocurrency billionaire who is known for shoring up his industry. He's spending a lot of his personal capital, philanthropic efforts, charitable efforts, really towards preventing the next pandemic, which he worries will be deadlier and further cripple already decimated economies around the world. But all three of these folks comes down to investment and how governments particularly the U.S. government invests. All right, so the Big Take story on the terminal and on the Bloomberg.com slash Big Take you had Abby Joseph Cohen, former Goldman Sachs strategist, now Columbia. Sam Bankman-Fried, who was the FTX chief executive officer, and Ken Molas, uh, CEO of his uh, Molas and Company, big investment banker. Some cool thoughts there. All right, so Shanali, we've just gotten through three, four days of the big bank earnings here. Is there a, when you talk to investors, is there a a takeaway here that we're getting from these names? Caution, caution, and more caution. Okay. David Solomon is addressing investors right now on a call, and they're asking, you know, uh, are we just going to see a huge pullback in risk among corporate borrowers, investors willing to put money to work in riskier assets? And he's saying that people just have to get used to the new price of things. Is there loan growth out there? Are people taking on debt to fund new businesses, new capex? It just seems like to caution. buy food and gasoline. To buy Bank food of America and gasoline. just sold a million credit cards. Essentially, right. you know, they just bought on a million new clients in the last quarter alone. Wow! And so there is some signs of optimism here, but again, they also lost three hundred million dollars in a loan book as spreads widen. So there's a cost yeah. to doing business for these banks here. Also, the credit thing could be seen uh, from the other direction, right? Like if you need to get a credit card to fill up your car and feed your family, that's which you used good. to be able to do with your bank account and balance, that's problematic. Real quick point here, Bank of America, only 9% of its clients are below 660 in credit score. That was 12% a couple of years ago. Maybe it's just that Bank of America has less risky clients and has shedded the riskiest of the risky. And then if you're a riskier borrower in America, where do you go? And the investment bankers, tough quarter for them, right? Uh, yes, for the underwriters, but Goldman Sachs' advisory fees we're $1.2 billion, Paul. How do you yep. make $1.2 billion <laughs> in an environment like this? That's double what you saw at Morgan Stanley. Is and that it's, right? It's insane. Wow. Because you don't usually <laughs> see that disparity between Goldman and Morgan Stanley on nope. the banking side. And that tells you, even though they said they're slowing the hiring velocity here, yep. they're going to be very precise in how they do that. Hmm. All right. Good stuff. Shanali Basak, she covers all things Wall Street for us. Got the big take story. You can check that out on Bloomberg. Uh, dot com slash big take or ni big take 
on the Bloomberg Terminal. And those big take stories are awesome. Shanali, big uh, in-depth reporting there, as we see almost every day from the big take folks here. And we also got a summary of uh, the big investment banks reporting uh, earnings. And as Shanali noted, probably the takeaway is caution. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Samir Samana, Senior Global Market Strategist for Wells Fargo, joins us. Samir was also a former fixed income trader, and that's where I want to start, Samir. I'm looking at my INGO function on the Bloomberg Terminal. Corporate, the Bloomberg U.S. corporate total return down 13.4% year-to-date. What are you guys doing in the fixed income market? You know, so for much of the year, we, we kind of been playing defensive, you know, kind of strategy. So kind of going shorter on the duration. We've been most unfavorable on long-term fixed income. More recently, we downgraded credit um, to unfavorable, again, with the thinking that a slowdown will probably impact spreads. And they're still well off kind of their historical wides. So there's probably still an opportunity to kind of shy away from that. Um, and then now that, you know, it seems like the Fed's, you know, gotten some religion around, you know, rate increases, um, we actually took long-term fixed income back to neutral. Um, we think at this point there's probably some two-way risk, especially if the recession were to, to show up sooner and be a little bit deeper than people expect. So we, we have taken, uh, you know, some of that duration, you know, out just a little bit. Um, again, wouldn't be you know leaning out over our skis, but those are a couple of things that we've 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 done recently. Also, I, I think it's worth noting munis, right? Especially when you look at them relative yeah. to corporates and relative to treasuries, um, those seem like a pretty interesting place to to put some money, especially if you're in a higher tax bracket. You're preaching to the choir, Samir, but I I cannot get my colleague here, Matt Miller, to to really jump in both feet into the munis. I can't imagine the words munis and interesting in the same sentence <laughs> to be to be fair right you just buy that stuff put it away and collect coupons which is good yep um but uh, nobody trades it uh what about equities samir i mean there has been a lot of the big bears have been saying that we're halfway through this yet but um if everybody's freaked out isn't that the time to buy 
there's probably a good bit of damage that's already been done. And, you know, kind of like fixed income, we've been playing you know, defense on the, the equity side, too, from the standpoint of, you know, we've been going up in market cap from smalls to mids and large. And we've been going from developed markets and emerging markets to the U.S. So, you know, thus far this year, things have played, you know, pretty nicely in our favor. So we feel like, you know, we have some some room maybe to, to be opportunistic, being kind of in that defensive position. Um, so, you know, as we look towards probably, you know, kind of a recovery into next year, I think we'll maybe kick the tires on some of the areas where we're unfavorable, like small caps, emerging markets and developed markets. But we think it's much too soon. So stay kind of in higher cap, higher quality areas. Uh, on the sector side, we're probably a little bit more balanced, uh, again, with the thinking that, um, you know, we like energy, we like healthcare, we like tech. We think they have some, you know, characteristics that could help them do well. Um, energy is kind of your stagflationary play, healthcare, if we tip into a recession, and then tech kind of has that secular growth aspect to it. Um, and we paired it against an unfavorable to discretionary, right? So if you, you've kind of part and parcel growth. You've got tech, comms, and discretionary. We're overweight tech. We're neutral comms, and we're unfavorable on discretionary. Um, we're also unfavorable on REITs and on industrials. So, you know, we've basically tried to kind of barbell a portfolio where we're not getting too defensive because, again, um, you know, with rates still low, equities are, you know, still at reasonable valuation. So we've tried to be more balanced than, than outright defensive. You know, it, it feels, Samir, I mean, I've been in this game for 30-plus years, but it feels like the confidence the sentiment in the marketplace today is just really bad whether it's recession whether it's inflation uh interest rates it's almost kind of gets me to the point of i haven't seen it this bad in a long time it almost makes me feel like maybe i should be buying here you know, it's not a bad idea to, to, to stick to a plan, right? I mean, if your dollar cost averaging or if you've got cash flows coming in and you're continuing to allocate to equities, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think there's a good point to be made about, you know, look, we started this journey at 4,800. We started this journey in January. We're now closer to 3,800 than 4,800, and we're already in the middle part of July. And so, you know, if you think about bear markets lasting a little over a year and you see them kind of draw down about 35 percent, you could argue that you're about, you know, half to two-thirds of the way on both price and time. So, you know, again, it's not a bad idea to stick to a plan and to continue to allocate to equities. I mean, you know, nobody should take what we're saying as, as a reason to avoid them altogether. I think, you know, what we try to do, you know, with respect to our investment professionals and our clients is just make sure that they're not surprised. And I think, you know, from that standpoint, I think what we're at least telling them is, you know, look, as these rate hikes, you know, continue to kind of pile up and work with the lag that they normally work with, you know, they're going to have much of their impact in the second half of this year. And so, you know, it's just hard to, to say that you're not going to see a shoe drop with respect to earnings, right? I mean, you've got consensus still, you know, showing growth for this year and next year and the right. year after that. So I guess earnings do grow to the sky after all. Um, so, you know, until those expectations come down, it's just hard to say that, you know, stocks can, can do well. I appreciate the sentiment piece of it, but sentiment sometimes can be a little bit right. too jumpy. Right. All right. Awesome stuff. Uh, Samir, thanks so much uh, for joining us, giving us your thoughts here as we try to navigate these markets of brutal uh, 2022, certainly for equity and fixed income investors. Samir Samana, Senior Global Market Strategist at Wells Fargo, joining us here, giving us his thoughts on these markets. All right. Let's talk ESG, environmental, social, and governance. That has been one of the big big themes in investments. I'm going to say over the last 10 to 15 years here in the U.S. and maybe even longer than that in Europe, and it's so big 
that Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research arm of Bloomberg, has multiple ESG analysts. And our lead ESG analyst is Shaheen Contractor. Uh, she covers all things ESG for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Shaheen, it's just been the rage. People are like, oh, ESG investing, I have to have exposure to it. You've been telling me this, this for years. Talk to us about kind of where we are today, because everywhere you look in the marketplace, equities, fixed income, down double digits. How is ESG investing and the flows into ESG, how's that behaving this year? So Paul, this year has been particularly interesting for ESG, especially after all the growth we've seen in the last few years. And this year has actually been one of the few where we've seen a bit of a slowdown. So if you consider ESG ETFs as, you know, it's just a slice of the pie, assets the, uh, at the end of the second quarter were about 400 billion, about a 14% decline over the last 14. year. 14, okay. one forward. Yep. Yes. So that's, that's just assets in ESG, uh, in ETF wrappers, right? Yes. Not the price of the ETFs because they've come down more Correct. than that. Correct. Yeah. So that asset decline, you're right, is largely because of market contraction, but we have to recognize that flows slowed more for ESG than non ESG. I mean, my question is. Has the, especially the environmental mm -hmm. side of it, has that been hurt or helped by um, the inflation combined with uh, the war in Ukraine, which amplifies the inflation, right? Because either it, it uh, the lack of fossil fuels out of Russia pushes us more towards wind and solar, like we got to build that out faster, yeah. but it, at the same time, it, we are also using all the coal that we can and maybe turning nuclear reactors back on. Yeah, yeah. So to answer your question, definitely hurt. Hurt, this year, okay. Yeah, and that's because ESG funds tend to be overweight tech, underweight energy, as you said, and that's not been so great so far this year, right? Tech has been particularly challenged. Uh, energy has, has uh, sort of skyrocketed. And I mean, actually, you're looking at it from an investment perspective. Yes, investment but, but perspective. But what about maybe a policy perspective? Yeah. It's, it's boosted because even though point. now we're using dirty, dirty coal, um, you know, politicians are saying, we really need to build these wind farms or we need to invest more in solar energy or solar yeah. uh, capacitator production, etc. Yeah. So over the long term, yes, this hopefully will accelerate a shift to cleaner energy over the long term, especially to reduce Russia's sort of dependency on, on oil and gas. Um, but if you look at short term performance, if you ask me, hot, continued for the rest of the year, hot. Okay. So talk to us about just um, where's the demand coming for ESG investments? Because when I first started hearing about ESG, it was probably more than a decade ago, and it was from European institutional investors that I would go visit. They would say, I'd be talking to them about Disney, and they would ask me what the ESG score was. And I said, what are you even talking about? I mean, it's Mickey Mouse. How, how bad can he be? Um, but now it's become more of a thing here in the U.S., where are we kind of in kind of the development of ESG? Sure. So if you think about assets, Europe, you're right. Europe has been, you know, the traditional sort of the, the heavyweight. But the U.S. has caught up. U.S. assets have seen, it's gone from about 17% as a share to about 33%, which is quite substantial. But if in you share of total invested total assets in U.S.? ESG ETF. Okay, ETF. Okay. Yes. But if you consider where these assets are coming from, I would still describe it as very institutional and still very European, if that makes sense. Um, but definitely institutional in nature. So um, we focus on the E, the S and the G. Is that 
improving over this year? I mean, uh, so it seems like. Well, here's a governance story for you, Matt. Porsche is coming public, right? Yeah. And that's not a good G thing because their governance there, it seems like all the shareholders, like if I'm going to be a public shareholder, I'm getting like almost no rights there in that company because the rights are sticking with VW and all their crazy shareholders. Well, the they have a family that owns all of that, the Porsche <laughs> yeah. family and the right. family. Yeah. So what am I getting? Well, you're gonna, hopefully you're going to participate in um, future growth. See, right? I'm tying in ESG with <laughs> ESG, an IP, yep. IPO of a, a big I Porsche. guess you probably don't focus on that kind of governance. No, we do. We do. do you? I, yeah, we do. I think governance has always been sort of a stronghold. It's been the ENS that have sort of picked up in attention, particularly the E. I think the S has picked up in terms of attention a lot after COVID, but that's really been only in the U.S. I mean, if you ask me, the whole Tesla thing is really a G issue, though. Yes. Everybody keeps confusing it. So. so what is your view or what is the ESG view community's view of Tesla? ESG community is very divided. I can tell you my view. So my view is that Tesla fits well within an E or an impact from, yep. you know, one that creates externality on the world. But if you ask me ESG in terms of risk mitigation, Tesla's G does not put it in that bucket. And I wouldn't consider it as in an ESG fund. But everybody does, right? Uh, it's divided. It's, okay. it's the most hotly debated thing. But yes, a lot of funds do because MSCI does have it as a high ESG scoring company. And a lot of ESG ETFs tend to be MSCI based. So it ends up in many funds. By the way, in terms of the debates in the ESG community, mm -hmm. we had on engine number one recently. Fun. And, you know, um, they are the, I guess, activist fund that got board seats, I think two board seats at Exxon. You wouldn't normally think of Exxon in an ESG fund. You don't want to hold Exxon yeah. because they're doing all the polluting. On the other hand, maybe you do want to hold yeah. Exxon so you can control the future of the company. Correct. So I think that's sort of the new angle of proxy voting and you know owning a company to be able to vote your feet, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, and create change. And that's really the strategy behind what Engine One's doing. Then you vote ETF, they're just going to hold the S&P 500 and engage with all the companies. So it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. When So when energy fund. companies, they're kind of the poster child, at least for me, of you know an ESG, like a poor score or a weak score on ESG. But some people have said, these guys are really, particularly the European energy companies, mm -hmm. are really trying to go green. And so that might... You know, say, hey, maybe you think about them as an ESG compliant company, or at they, least getting they want to yeah. rape the earth of all her resources in the greenest possible way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so Paul, I think to your point, when I think of you know ESG, I don't think of it as being you know energy is bad and this is good. I think it's more within an industry, what are the better performing companies? Because otherwise, then you just end up with what you have today, right? Underway energy, overweight something, and you don't have diversification benefits. That's kind of what I think. I mean, I look at it. ESG fund, it kind of looks like a tech fund to me, yeah. a tech and healthcare fund. Should and I really mean, be industry agnostic. Yeah, there you go. All right, Shaquin Contractor, ESG Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly 
Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Talk sustainable energy here. We're going to do that with Per Regnarsson, CEO of Climate Rock. Climate Rock is a NASDAQ-listed stock. CLRCU is a symbol to punch in on your Bloomberg terminal. It's a blank check company looking to get into the sustainable uh, energy biz. Uh, per, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about Climate Rock. What are you guys looking to do? Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me. And, and um, you know, we are sustainable energy. Um, we chose the route of the of the SPAC market to list a company that would invest into you know, sustainable energy, meaning renewable energy, so wind and solar, hydroelectric power, global uh, investment mandate. Um, in a time where you know climate change and so is very high on the agenda, uh, and also where energy security, uh, at least over the last six months, have become very high on the agenda as well so the combination of uh, of these sort of major uh geopolitical and 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 geo trends in the markets is suggesting that you know we are in a in a good spot for that um there are many opportunities to do uh with the capital we raised back in late april early may um we raised 75 million plus uh, a bit extra so close to 80 um and are looking to um uh, Acquire a company or companies in the in in this in this sector that's growing uh, across all the continents. So, per I mean, you came public via uh, blank check uh, at in April of 2022 with ten dollars a share. That's kind of where the stock is right now. What is your expectation in terms of the timing of potentially getting a you know a defining transaction done for you guys? Well, I think I think we will be in a position to do something uh, in the near future uh, with an with an idea to close that uh, in the winter time. I mean, it would be great for us if we can close before uh, before the, the Christmas season sets in. But um, but you know, it, it, it's certainly something that will be done within that twelve months that we set ourselves as a target to uh, to conclude a business combination. How much does it matter um, that markets have tanked this year, and how much? Of a problem would it be if they continue to fall at the same pace? Well, it is in general. It obviously uh, makes a big difference. Uh, I think you know uh, when we look at us specifically, you know, we did a what I would call a relatively small IPO. Um, that means that uh, we are relatively speaking less exposed to any redemptions. Um, we are looking at uh, potential targets that would uh, you know create um, a very attractive market value uh, on top of of where we are. Um, and we're looking to um, execute a transaction where you know there'll be as little cash going out of the deal as possible, so everybody stays in 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 the stock, and therefore we have to raise less capital uh, and then um, yeah, execute this. Um, the reason for that is that we see this potential business combination being a growth stock, and we uh, believe that we have opportunities to grow significantly. Uh, after the D-SPAC, um, and, and that would give us the opportunity to raise various sources of capital. Uh, now, at the same time, uh, not being an IP or tech stock, but being a renewable energy stock, we also expect 
to be able to use um, uh, a business combination with a cash flowing business uh, to allow ourselves to have a sort of a relatively conservative combination of equity and debt. So we, we position ourselves to not having to raise too much cash and raise the cash through a combination of equity and debt. And at the same time, probably also by being in in, in a sector, which is one of the, I would call the mega trends uh, in the market, right. position us to have you know um, less redemption than average. So renewables is a broad, broad space here. Where specifically are you guys most interested in? So I think there are two ways of looking at it. Geographically, uh, and actually that's three, geographically, sector-wise, and then where do you want to be in the value chain in the industry? Uh, and, and we certainly see a business that will combine uh, some operating cash flows from service income uh, with some activities uh, you know, in development uh, so that we are bringing a combination of uh, resilient long-term cash flows with the upside of, of development uh, across solar and wind mainly, I believe, uh, is where you, know, you can safely be at the moment. We don't like to go into mm. sectors where we are taking too much uh, pizza risk. Um, but we could go into hydrogen. It's an interesting sector. It's a very hot topic. It's also an area that is, um, you know, has a real demand. Um, just taking industries, you know, the, the, the consumption in, in the global industries of, of, of hydrogen is about $200 billion a year. So if you can pl- replace that with green hydrogen, that's a massive opportunity for, for a company like this. All right, Per, thanks so much for joining us. Per Regnarsson, their CEO of Climate Rock, ticker CLRCU. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.